If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Second Peter chapter 2 tonight as we continue in our series in Second Peter. But let's start with a quick church history lesson. And when I said those two words, church history, half of you just checked out. So, <laughs> but I'm convinced that church history is more important than American history and U.S. history combined. So, and none of you saw what I did there, so you are asleep. That's great. Um, <laughs> the year is 300. Just after 300 AD, it's the fourth century. And the tides were changing in the world. Constantine just became emperor of the Roman Empire, and he issued the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity for the first time since its inception legal in the entire world, the entire Roman Empire, which means that Christians were no longer persecuted for their faith. Christians could practice freely without the fear of persecution, which is a big deal. But in the church at the time, the church was divided up into different regions across the known world. And uh, there was a region of the church in, in Egypt, and the, the leader of that part of the church, his name was Alexander. He was the bishop of Alexandria. Easy to remember, right? Alexander of Alexandria. Well, on one Sunday morning, he was uh, preaching a, a sermon about the father and the son, and how the father and the son were, were very similar to each other. And right in the middle of his sermon, there was a man named Arius, and Arius was a priest within his jurisdiction. So uh, that means that Alexander was the boss, right? Arius was within his jurisdiction, and he stands up and says, that's heresy. Now, if you're going to stand up and shout, that's heresy in the middle of a sermon, you better be sure it's heresy. If you're going to shout and, sh and say, that's heresy in the middle of your boss's sermon, then you really have to be sure you know what you're talking about. And a, a pretty big debate ensued in the days and weeks and months that followed. Arius and Alexander disagreed on a very, very important, actually two very important Greek words. So we'll do a little Greek lesson. The first word is homoousios. Homo means same. Ousios means substance, means of the same substance. The other Greek word is homoousios. Homoi means similar. Ousios means substance of a similar substance. Now, Arius believed that Jesus was of a similar substance to the Father, while Alexander believed that Jesus was of the same substance as the Father. The difference between those two Greek words is just one letter, one yoda. It'd basically be the Greek equi equivalent of our English letter I. That's the difference. So what's the big deal? You mean you're calling somebody a heretic over one little letter? It's correct, because the, the meaning is pretty substantial. The conclusion of Arius's belief was that Jesus, not being of the same substance, but be, being of a similar substance as the Father, was not co-eternal with the Father, that he was created by God the Father at a point prior to creation. Jesus was the highest created being, according to Arius. And Alexander said, no, that's heresy. And Alexander wrote a letter to the church leaders in Constantinople and said, this guy's a heretic and I'm kicking him out of the church. Well, you can imagine that Arius wasn't too thrilled and he decided he wasn't going to go down without a fight, he and all of his followers. <laughs> so drama ensued and, and the church realized that they weren't going to be able to resolve this debate unless they gathered everybody together. So for the first time, in the history of the church, all of the leaders, all of the bishops from all around the world gathered together 
in the first ecumenical council. Ecumenical just means universal. The year was 325, and they met in the town of Nicaea. But think about the backdrop. 19 years earlier, Christianity had still been illegal throughout the world. So the bishops that gathered, many, they had the the marks on their body of the persecution that they faced as followers of Christ. And then Christianity is legal. And now for the first time, the, the emperor, Constantine, is actually paying for them, all 300 of them, to come to Nicaea and to talk theology. It's incredible. I can imagine that with these men from all around the world representing different people groups coming together to talk about theology and unity in their faith, I can imagine the environment was electric and ecstatic. But the reason that they were gathering together primarily was to discuss the belief of Arianism, that Jesus was the highest creation of God the Father. Now, the church had been persecution-free for less than 20 years, and it took less than 20 years for a major faction to try to divide the church. So you can understand that a lot of the bishops, they decided they wanted to compromise. They wanted to find a way to still allow Arius and his belief to somehow be part of the, the church. Now, Arius, he wasn't even a bishop. He was just a priest. So he couldn't even go to the council. So someone, a man named Eusebius, who was a bishop, who held to his position, had to present it for him. And as Eusebius was talking and sharing his position in front of all 300 other bishops, he finally got to the point where he said, yes, and Jesus is, a, is the highest creation of God. He's a created being. And instantly the tone of the bishops changed and they started shouting, you lie, blasphemy, heresy. They ripped the pages from Eusebius's hands. They threw them on the ground and they trampled them under their feet. Dramatic much? But the conclusion of the Council of Nicaea was significant. They condemned Arian as a heretic. They condemned Arianism as a heresy. But more importantly, they created uh, the Nicene Creed, which is simply just a summary of beliefs. But the way that they created it, they used that really important Greek word, homoousios, in talking about Jesus' relationship with the Father, saying that Jesus is of the same substance, not a similar substance as God. Now, I wish that Arianism died when Arius died a couple years later, but like any good heresy, they just get repackaged and they just come back around. Arianism was still popular in Germanic tribes in the 5th century. It made its way around Europe in the 7th century. Even after the Protestant Reformation, some Protestant groups across Europe adopted a form of Arianism. And did you know that it still exists today? It just has a new name. Jehovah's Witnesses and the LDS Church, Mormons, both hold to a more nuanced form of Arian theology. Now, as I think about Arius, who caused a great deal of headaches for the early church, when I think about other false teachers, it causes me to ask a question. God, why are you allowing these guys to teach? Don't you think it'd just be a lot easier? if Arius would have never had his platform, if he would have never had the opportunity to share. As I look at the false teachers past and present, maybe sometimes we think, God, are you sleeping? Like, what, what's going on? When's judgment coming? When are you going to do something about all this bad doctrine in our world? I'm convinced I'm not the only one that asks, that's asked that question. I think many of you have as well. And I'm convinced that's the question that's behind our text in 2 Peter tonight. 
God, when's judgment going to come on those who are teaching bad and unbiblical doctrine? Now, we have to remember the backdrop of our letter of 2 Peter. The title of our series is, is Press On. That's what we've identified as the theme of, of 2 Peter. Remember the backdrop. Peter is writing from Rome under, underneath a pers- persecution that was the complete opposite of what surrounded the Council of Nicaea under the Edict of Milan. The persecution under Nero, when Peter wrote the letter, was insane. It was incredible. I mean, Peter is probably months, maybe years away from being crucified upside down because of his, his faith. But when Peter writes 2 Peter and he tells the church to press on, if you were to read through 2 Peter, how much does it talk about persecution and oppression? Almost nothing. I'll save you some time. Instead, when Peter talks about pressing on, he's talking about pushing through, persevering through false teaching. Isn't that incredible? That while the persecution is as intense as it's ever been, Peter says something that's profound. Don't miss this. The greatest threat to Jesus' church comes from inside the church, not outside the church. The greatest threat to Jesus' church comes from people who are wearing the Jesus jersey but are teaching something that Jesus would reject. So as Peter continues in chapter 2, he, he begins to unpack the nature, the characteristics of false teachers. And then he answers our question, God, what are you going to do about it? So let's start with 2 Peter 2. I'll just read the first three verses together. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, I'll be reading out of the ESV. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Okay, we've got to remember what we talked about last, or two weeks ago, last time we were in Second Peter. No prophecy of Scripture comes about by man's own interpretation, but Peter's talking about the Old Testament prophets who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, there were true prophets, but in the entire Old Testament, there were also false prophets, people who claimed to speak on behalf of God. But did you know that God warned the Israelites that false prophets would come? He told them that that would be a reality. He says that in Deuteronomy 18, verse 22. Let me read that. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if that word does not come to pass or come true, that's a word that the Lord has not spoken. And the prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. God knew that false prophets would come. People who claimed to speak on behalf of God, but were really using their prophecy to line their own pockets. So God provides what we would call a, a prophet authenticity test. Maybe to, to help us understand what that looks like, maybe I can make a comparison to the field of meteorology. Now, if, if you're a meteorologist, to have a job, you've got to be successful at predicting the weather just over 50% of the time. That's not a knock on meteorology. I'm actually amazed that anyone can predict what the weather is going to be like tomorrow with any degree of accuracy. 
And with the tools that they have, they do an, an incredible job. But God reminds us often that he's in the control of the weather, and there's a lot of things that we just cannot predict. But compare that with what God says about a prophet. They're very different, aren't they? God says that if someone claims to speak on his behalf, they claim to be a prophet, but one time they make a prediction that doesn't come true, God says, throw them out. They're not a true prophet. Just one time. That's the standard in the book of Deuteronomy. And throughout the Old Testament, there were false prophets who claimed to speak on God's behalf. And Peter makes a comparison to false teachers in the New Testament, just as there were false prophets. Now there's false teachers today. It's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. They've always been around. So we can't be surprised or caught off guard when a false teacher arises from within the midst of a church. That's what Peter's saying. But he uses the word destructive heresies. It's really a destructive teaching even going to the point that they deny the master, Jesus, who bought them. So through those three, first three verses of our text, Peter outlines three characteristics of false teachers. So that's the first blank that you have tonight. We've got to outline three characteristics of false teachers. And the first is destructive heresies. The first is destructive heresies. I don't like to throw the word heresy around. Um, I think we reserve the word heresy for things that we would consider to be top-tier issues, gospel issues for the most part. I remember when I was in high school, I had a friend who went to a, a church that subscribed to a form of modalism. Let me explain, because three of you know what modalism is. Modalism is a non-Trinitarian position um, which believes that God exists or existed in different modes at different times. It sounds complicated. It's actually fairly simple to explain. That in creation and throughout the Old Testament, God existed as God the Father. Then through the incarnation when Jesus came to earth, God existed as God the Son. And then today, God exists as God the Holy Spirit. Different modes at different times. It's a non-Trinitarian position. I would call it an unorthodox position. Now, if we were to go to Scripture and say, here's a passage that clearly disproves modalism, what would it be? Isaac Sutton, what would it be? Jesus' baptism. That's a perfect, a perfect example. Um, because of Jesus' baptism, what do we see? God the Father is, is speaking. We see Jesus getting baptized, and the Holy Spirit is there in the form of a dove, right? High priestly, uh, high priestly Prayer is a great one, Rebecca Rice. That's a good one too. So that's like, that's like the seminary answer. That's the Bible college answer. So nice job. It's <laughs> exactly what I would hope. So great, great answer. Um, but I remember when I was talking to my friend about modalism, uh, they said, but the word Trinity is never in the Bible. So why is it a big deal? Did you know that? That if you go to Bible Gateway and you search Trinity... That is not going to pop up. And I thought, well, that sounds like a pretty good argument. So I was talking to my youth pastor uh, and uh, used the same line. Well, since Trinity is not in the Bible, why is it such a big deal? <laughs> I will never forget his face. Said it all. It said, no, Sam, this is a huge deal. And let me lecture you for the next five minutes on why it's a big deal. But why? Why is it a big deal? We know that God is one. Scripture is clear. The Father is God, 
The Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father. The Trinity is the best way for us to explain the three-in-one-ness that we see within the Godhead demonstrated in Scripture. And yes, the term Trinity is not in Scripture, but the church, early church, starting as early as the first and second century, started to use the term Trinity to define what we see within the Godhead. When we look at the Council of Nicaea, for example, the Council of Constantinople later in the fourth century, they both used very Trinitarian language affirming the three-in-oneness of the Godhead. When we think about the Trinity, it is not just one of many possible ways to explain the Godhead. It is the only orthodox way to explain the three-in-oneness that we see without violating Scripture. But when I was in high school, I didn't know what I didn't know. I'd hardly studied theology. So for somebody to say, well, the word Trinity is not in Scripture, to me seemed like a pretty good argument. Actually, it was not a very good argument, but it seemed persuasive to me as a 17-year-old. It wasn't until I started studying theology that I realized how important theology is. And I wonder if you're thinking the same thing. Like, what's the big deal about theology? Why study theology? Is it really that important? Actually, the answer is yes. Theology matters. Yes, it is really that important. But it's hard to realize how important it is until you start to study it. It's hard for us to identify a heretic if we don't know theology. You're in a stage of your life right now where you have more time than you'll ever have. I know you feel busy, but there's a day that's coming soon. Tiki and Shane, please plug your ears. When you add a couple of kids to the mix and life changes a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And someday, you're going to look back at your old self when you maybe have kids in the future and you're going to think, wow, Sam was right. I really did have a lot of free time. Instead of using your free time now to watch an hour of Netflix every night or to scroll through Instagram and TikTok for two or three hours every day, what would it look like to study some theology? To find a good theology podcast, to take some online courses, to read a good theology book like Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Even for uh, theology courses, shameless plug for the uh, college that I went to, um, Cedarville University where I did my undergrad, They've published their, um, two of their college-level theology courses. They published the lectures on the internet free of charge. Um, and they're great content. It'd be a great way for us to grow in our theology. Or here, right here in this room, every Sunday morning starting on November 20th at 9.20 a.m., the uh, equipping Sunday school class is going to start a deep dive into theology. Five weeks of Christology, and then Bibliology, the study of the Bible, Soteriology, the study of salvation, other ologies uh, starting in 2023. All you have to do is come to church one hour early compared to when many of you come or maybe stay an hour late and come in here at 9.20 uh, a.m. to do some deep theology starting on November 20th. I'm convinced that the American church is largely theologically illiterate. And I pray that young adults breaks the trend, that we can become theologians. But there's a follow-up question, isn't there? Some of you smart ones are asking this question. Okay, so let's say I pick up a theology book. Well, let's say I pick up a theology podcast. I started to listen to it. How do I know it's true? How do I know that's not heresy? How do I know that's not unorthodox? You're asking that question because you should. It's an important question. 
Because we have to be able to evaluate what we're studying, what we're learning, what we're listening to, and determine, well, is this true? Is this untrue? Well, what do we do? We always go here. This is the ultimate source of our authority. This is inspired and inerrant. I am not inspired and inerrant. So anything that any pastor says, anything that I say from the platform, you should never take at face value, ever. Always compare it to what we see in Scripture, always. If you're around the church long enough, you're going to hear a very, very Christianese phrase, and it goes like this. Be a good Berean. Ever heard that before? If you haven't heard that before, that's okay. Um, It really is Christianese language that we probably should retire. But if you haven't heard that phrase before, um, it comes from Acts chapter 17. It's a great concept. Paul's on his missionary journey, and he says this, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. That doesn't sound very nice. They were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica, whatever. (laughs) But they, in Berea, received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. See what they did? Paul and Silas were preaching in the synagogue. And you know what Paul was preaching? He was preaching the good news about Jesus, but he was talking to Jews, which meant that Paul opened up the New Testament, the first half of the Bible, and he was preaching about Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures, what they all agreed on. And the Bereans, instead of just saying, yeah, Paul, that sounds good. Yeah, Paul, we believe that. They opened up the Old Testament and verified that what Paul was saying was true. And they discovered, yeah, Paul, you're right. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. But instead of just accepting it, they went to Scripture. It's so important for us to be good Bereans, that we don't just listen to a sermon, read a theology book, and assume, yeah, that's true. No, we always go back to Scripture, which is our authority and our foundation. So that's the first way to spot a heretic, look for their false teaching. The next two characteristics have less to do about uh, a false teacher's theology and more to do about how they taught and how they lived their life. Look at the next line. It says, many will follow their sensuality. The word in Greek for sensuality, um, I'm not a huge fan of the translation there. It's actually a lot deeper, a lot stronger than that. Maybe a, a better translation would be extreme immorality. It's not just an innuendo or two. This is celebrating what God calls sin, complete disregard for God's sexual ethic. That's the second way, second characteristic of a false teacher is extreme immorality. A couple examples, one from history, one from today. Think of Joseph Smith, the founder, one of the founders of the Mormon faith, who privately taught and practiced polygamy while publicly condemning it. But then after he passed, a couple other church leaders, including Brigham Young, discovered some revelation from Joseph Smith that uh, continued to advance the idea of polygamy and became popular, became doctrine within the LDS faith. Brigham Young 
at least at one time, had 51 wives. Now, as we look at the New Testament, I would say that uh, polygamy is not in bounds. Uh, It is against God's desire, it is sinful, and it harms people who are created in God's image. And thankfully, the LDS faith um, moved away from polygamy the turn of the 20th century, though there are still some fundamental groups of Mormons that still might practice it today. But that's blatant immorality. Maybe a more modern example, when a pastor or teacher is fully affirming of the sexual revolution, when a pastor or teacher is a champion of the LGBTQIA agenda, when a pastor or teacher is advocating for children to have sex reassignment surgery, when a pastor or teacher is an advocate for no-fault divorce or is living in blatant sexual sin, all of those things would fall under this category, practicing or teaching extreme immorality. In our world, if you see a pastor or a teacher that is doing any one of those things, we have to run from their teaching. But it's the next phrase that is heartbreaking. And because of them, the false teachers, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Blasphemed is a tough word, maybe reviled, maligned, maybe in layman's terms, because of the way that they're living their life, they make Jesus look really bad. And when I look at our world, it's not just sensuality. It's not just extreme immorality that's maligning the name of Jesus. It's broader than that, isn't it? Somebody who wears the Jesus jersey, who claims to be a Christian, but storms the U.S. Capitol in an act of terrorism. It's somebody who wears the Jesus jersey, claims to be a Christian, yet is championing abortion rights for all. Somebody who wears the Jesus jersey and claims to be a Christian, yet is a complete jerk to every single one of their coworkers. And because of those behaviors, it makes Jesus look bad. That if you're going to do those things, please don't wear the Jesus jersey. I hope that's never true of us. So that's the second characteristic. Look at the next line. In their greed, these false teachers will exploit you with false words. So when we combine the word uh, exploit with greed, uh, Peter's definitely talking about material gain, talking about preachers or pastors, false teachers who are using uh, their skill, their gift, their platform uh, to make a lot of money. Now, I'm not going to advocate for Instagram. I just want to use Instagram as an example. If you're on Instagram, maybe you've heard of an account, (laughs) can't believe I'm talking about this, called Preachers and Sneakers. Ever heard of this before? If you haven't, it might change your life. Um, (laughs) So somebody runs this account, and it's it's true, but it's satire, definitely makes fun of the, the Christian subculture. And here's what the person who runs it generally does, as half of you pulled out your phones to look it up. Um... They take a picture, a screenshot of a famous pastor while they're preaching. And then they take another screenshot of the retail value of the clothing they're wearing. Um, I was on a couple days ago, and uh, there was a post from a couple weeks ago of a 
pastor, I didn't even know who it was, um, from another country, I think, who uh, was wearing a, I'm not even going to say it right, a Louis Vuitton. I say that right? Is that right? Yes. Okay, I, have no, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Oh, I just got three people applauding for me. I feel so loved and accepted and affirmed. He was wearing a Louis Vuitton jacket that was worth five grand. That could send four of you all expenses paid on our Mexico mission trip. It's crazy, right? Now, I actually know the content of what a lot of these preachers are <laughs> preaching, and it's not good. It's what we would call the prosperity gospel. You've heard us talk about that here on Monday nights before. It's a false gospel that says, believe in Jesus and you'll get whatever you want. Believe in Jesus and if you have enough faith, he's going to make you happy and wealthy and prosperous. Your life is going to be perfect. Just, just believe. It's believing in Jesus, not to get Jesus, but to get what I want. It's a false gospel. But you can understand why people want to listen to that because it makes them feel good. It makes them think, man, I can, get, I can become a Christian. I can get whatever I want. My life is going to be perfect and, and easy. But what does the New Testament say about our walk with Christ? It's not our best life now. It's our best life later. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We should expect opposition and trials and struggle. Not our best life now. But what these preachers do is they tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear, and then they make a lot of money doing it. Now, is it inherently wrong to have money? No, it's not. However, if somebody makes money by preaching the Bible while manipulating Scripture to tell people what they want to hear, then that's what Peter's talking about. If we see a pastor who's rolling in the dough, then there's a much higher chance that they're a false teacher. So our third characteristic of a false teacher is greed and exploitation. When I scroll through preachers and sneakers, it's humorously horrifying. <laughs> it's humorous because I cannot fathom paying $1,000 for a pair of shoes or $600 for a sweatshirt. But it's horrifying because I know the content of what they're teaching. And for many of them, it's garbage. And I ask, God, are you sleeping? God, are you paying attention? God, if this teaching is so destructive, then why aren't you doing anything? That's the hidden question behind our text. The question that we can read between verse 3 and verse 4, when is judgment coming for those who are leading people astray towards false teaching? Look at verse 4 in our text. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows 
how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and those who despise authority. As is typical for Peter, this is not an easy section exegetically. Verse 4 is a particular challenge. Um, Without getting too far into the weeds, he talks about the angels. Um, I don't think that this is all of the third of the angels who fell along with Satan uh, before the fall. I actually think this, this is a special class of angels that are discussed in Genesis chapter 6 and Jude 1 verse 6 who committed an extra heinous crime in Genesis chapter 6 and then God actually locked them up under chains of gloomy darkness. It sounds like a, a dark prison according to Peter to be preserved uh, for judgment until the last day. That's all I'm going to say about verse 4. Verse 5, a little more straightforward. Noah. Noah. You sing songs about Noah. We all know Noah. He's one of the heroes of the faith. But can you imagine being Noah? Living in the midst of a culture that not one person, not one outside of your family was righteous. Not one followed Jesus. And God said, I'm going to destroy the entire world, Noah. I'm going to start over with you and your family. Can you imagine how hard it would be to live in that culture? People think today is the challenge. Man, that would be 15, 20 times worse. And God tells Noah, I'm going to send a flood to cover the entire world. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Noah had probably never seen rain. He'd never seen a flood in that proportions. And it takes him probably 100 years to build this giant boat for animals and his family. It's crazy. What do we learn from Noah? That at the same time, God can preserve the righteous and punish the wicked. Then he talks about Lot. Lot, maybe you haven't heard of him. He's a little more obscure in the Old Testament. He's a relative of Abraham. And Lot lived in a city called Sodom. Sodom was synonymous with evil, with sin, with immorality. It's like Las Vegas in the States, but like on steroids, in public, blatant and immorality. And God's going to destroy the city of Sodom, the city of Gomorrah, because of their sin. But Lot's a righteous man. Did you see what Peter said about Lot? That righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their unrighteous deeds. Huh. Are our souls in torment because of the wickedness in our world? Hmm. When you're watching that Netflix show, and that scene pops up. You know what I'm talking about. And they tend to sneak them in even more and more. Do we do this and fast forward? Or do you just stare and intrigue? The coworkers are having that crude blowboard conversation. Do you kind of stay close enough to hear and intrigue? Or do we walk away? How about inside of our own heart? Are we more and more disgusted by the sin inside of us? Or are we more and more okay with the sin that we see inside? I hope that we can look more and more like Lot, that our soul is disgusted, tormented, not just by the sin around us, but by the sin that still exists even within our own hearts. Okay, back to Lot. He was the only God-fearing man that lived in Sodom. And what did God do? He rescued Lot, two of his daughters. 
while destroying the rest of the city. So Peter answers our question. God, what are you doing? God, are you sleeping? Look at verse 9 one more time. Because of Lot, because of Noah, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. It's the big idea for our text. If God can rescue Lot and destroy Sodom, if God can rescue Noah and destroy the entire world, then God can do the same thing in our context too. He can simultaneously preserve the righteous while holding the wicked under punishment until their final judgment. So two final things for us to remember. First, God's an expert multitasker. He's really good at doing a lot of things at once, but particularly two things. Rescuing the righteous while keeping the wicked under punishment. Some people look at our world and accuse God's wrath of being slow. False teachers maybe even suggested that his wrath was never coming. But Peter's clear, uh, the next chapter in chapter 3, that God is not slow, he's patient. And you and I should be remarkably grateful for God's patience, that he was patient with you and me, allowing us to repent and believe. But I hope that we find comfort in this text, that if we believe in God, if we believe that Jesus died for us, if his righteousness has been credited to our account, then God's going to rescue us from wrath and judgment. We're not going to receive any of the consequences of his wrath. He will shield us with his perfect umbrella. He simultaneously preserves the righteous and punishes the wicked. But Peter does help us put God's wrath in perspective because God's judgment is coming on the world, on those who don't believe, especially the false teachers. Did you catch the two pictures of wrath that Peter paints in our text? Well, the first is a global catechismic flood. And then the second is burning two cities, really an entire valley, by raining down fire and sulfur. Those are not pretty pictures of God's wrath. God's wrath is coming, and it's not yet revealed. And when his righteous wrath is poured out in the last days against evil and wickedness and unrighteousness, it's going to be even worse than in Lot's day or Noah's day. When his wrath is poured out, it will be swift and complete. There will be no escape from the righteous wrath of God. So finally, we have to be patient because God's judgment is coming. Is God asleep? No, he's not sleeping. Is God going to do anything about these false teachers? Yes, he is. Just not today. It's as if Peter responds and says, be patient. God's judgment is just around the corner. And when you and I consider God's wrath, when we think about his judgment, it should do some things in our heart. That if you know Christ, that if you believe in Jesus, we should have zero fear about God's wrath because Jesus took the wrath for us on the cross. He absorbed the full weight of our sin that we don't have to fear God's coming wrath. If you don't know Jesus as your savior, if you've never believed in him, then God's wrath should make you tremble. Because if Jesus hasn't absorbed God's wrath for you, then you're going to absorb his wrath for all of eternity. And today you have a choice to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, 
to cry out to him as your savior, to turn from your old way of life and follow him. Don't delay. But as we think about God's wrath, reminds us to share our faith with those who don't know Christ. Because when our family members and friends, when they breathe their last, there are no second chances. Sometimes, functionally, we live like God's wrath is just a myth, but it's coming, and we can't forget about it. Well, let me finish with the same question that I started with. God, why are you allowing all these false teachers to continue to spread false doctrine throughout the world? I don't know. It's above my pay grade. (laughs) But I do have one idea. Think back to the Council of Nicaea in 325 when Arianism was condemned as heretical. What would have happened if Arius wouldn't have taught? What would have happened if we wouldn't have had that belief system? We never would have had the Council of Nicaea. We never would have had the Nicene Creed. Bad doctrine has forced the church to come together and to make unified theological decisions. If it wasn't for bad theology, our good theology wouldn't be quite as good. Theology matters. Let's pray. Father, it's always good to open your word. Um, Always good to to ask you to to speak to us and uh, to remind us of your grace and your power and your greatness through your word. Second Peter's been hard in very many ways, but it's been a challenge for us. And as we think about receiving teaching, whether that's at young adults, whether that's at our church on a Sunday morning, whether that's through podcasts or sermons or videos, books, allow us to be very diligent to always go back to your word. And instead of just assuming what we hear is true because we like the person or we like the book, always going back and comparing to your word by being good Bereans. And as we have a chance to talk theology tonight in our group, um, as we dialogue a little bit in our small groups, guide this time, uh, we give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.